ladies and gentlemen, um, I am here with uh, two men, I would at this point call uh, good friends. Um, I am here with the Honorable uh, Professor Dr. Dexter de La Paz um, and uh, the world-famous shitposter called uh, Thomas, Thomas Dark Woods. Um, I am very glad to have both the two gentlemen on. Uh, we will be talking about vaccines today uh, because it's um, it relates to COVID or COVID, um, so it's relevant and it's fairly self shelf stable. Um, now, myself and uh, Dexter La Paz have recently been inducted into uh, a fraternity standing for friendly retards anarchists for titties. Um, <laughs> part of this um, fraternity are uh, the members from the Burning Boots podcast the Punk Rock Libertarians uh, the Sight Dissecting Liberty show Anarchy Proper the good man from the Gaslight Hour um, which uh, Paz is one of the three musketeers of um, the show known as Sean V Planet the dose, erase the state, no real libertarian, that would be me. Uh, Trent must talk, which is my good friend Trent, um, who is also an asshole. Um, and then the Laurel and Hardy across the pond show, which would be me and Quincy. Um, so, um, you know, uh, check those out, and uh, a website will be up soon might even be up by the time this publishes uh, keep an eye out for it um with that out of the way um i'm sure most people uh can recognize the difference but just uh for for just to be sure um dexter uh mr de la paz please make yourself known yes hello dexter de la paz you may know me from my various and sundry podcast appearances. This is my audio check. Check, check. This is Dexter. Sounds good. Sounds good. All right. Mr. Thomas D. Woods, I'd like to hear from you. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm uh, Thomas Digger Woods. Uh, Pals can call me Tom. You must call me uh, Mr. Dark Woods, please. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> You know, yeah. and we've uh, we've had a couple of near misses. I'm glad to finally be talking to you. Yeah, nice to meet you too. We've uh, we meet at last, as they say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I believe the last time, um, uh, or at least the most recent time uh, in my memory, that you two were almost talking uh, was also on my show um, when I was um, uh, talking with um, Trent and Ziggy. Uh, and both of you um, and well myself and Trent got very drunk so it all turned into a bit of a shit show um, I am significantly more sober now though so um, let's get into today's topics the vaccines um, Mr. Thomas D will be acting as my um, essentially my co-host uh, my, uh, my ghost host I guess for this episode and we will be relying on the expert analysis of uh, Mr. Paz. All right. So considering vaccines, um, roughly what do we know about this that is true? Um, like, do they actually eradicate disease? Do they actually help? Um, and do we know of any negative side effects that are also proven true? So, to start out with the things that we absolutely do know, we need to consider that vaccines themselves are not a monolithic class. Right. We need to be prepared to consider that different vaccines do different things, they have different chemical compositions, and that they are used to treat any variety of illnesses. You know, right. we should say that the polio vaccine was extremely controversial for a very long time, and possibly for good reason. But it can't be denied that in the United States and really in most of the world where it's been applied, that it has, in fact, you know, nearly eradicated the polio virus. And we can say with uh, some amount of certainty that it was actually the vaccine 
uh, eradicating the polio virus, not just a lucky um, correlation? Yeah, you know, I think the evidence certainly supports that. There would be no other reason to see a downward trend in polio cases if that weren't the case. All right. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, yeah, I'm new to, or well, new. Uh, I only know the anti-vaccine cases from the extreme anti-vaxxers, basically, and the argument from uh, bodily autonomy, which is all nice and good, but so far most vaccines aren't quite mandatory, I think. Um, so that's what piqued my interest. Um, are there any other, uh, let's say, so there's been talk about a COVID-19 vaccine. Do we actually know anything about this already? About a potential COVID vaccine? Yes. We know that uh, there's, maybe you two would actually be able to answer this. I know there's one nation in Europe that's already uh, supposedly in the human trials phases for one. Hmm. And how they were able to so quickly develop one and push one to market, you know, even if it's just in the testing phase, is pretty remarkable because the life cycle for developing these things is typically several years, you know, depending on right. just what virus they're working on. And yeah. uh, I would also say that, especially you see that a lot with flu vaccines because there's several strains of the flu proper. And as they're developing one, they never necessarily know which flu they'll be given with or dealing with in a given year, which means that your typical flu vaccine is significantly more of what's called a crapshoot. You know, you might be familiar with that turn of phrase yeah. than other vaccines mm -hmm. would be. Right. I mean, uh, if it's uh, human experimentation, uh, it's probably Germany, you know. <laughs> so, uh... It's true. <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah. So, so you were you were talking earlier though, and I do want to hit on this. There are a lot of different arguments advanced by anti-vaxxers, and as someone who has a personal bias towards more holistic medicines when they are available, I'll say that I share a lot of sympathies with them. But uh, some of the accusations that they like to allege have been verifiably. Uh, disproven so it's important yeah. to really take some of those claims with a grain of salt though not necessarily all of them yeah yeah um i think uh yeah let's just right away go with what we know is not true um because there's um things like uh vaccines causing autism now, I, I'm no expert, but I am fairly certain that we can say uh, that it, it's, well, we just know it, it's factual that this is not true. Correct. And that is the big one that is verifiably false. And if you hear someone still advocating for that, you should gently and intellectually disabuse them of the notion immediately. That mm. claim originates from several pieces of research done in the late 90s. And it turns out that the man who led that research project had a direct conflict of interest because he was developing an alternate vaccine to the one that he ran his autism study on. Now, he made the claim that they led to neurological damage, which could cause autism, as a secondary result of primary damage to it was some portion of the digestive system or some sort of a oh. gastroenterological error. Entrological? That's the word. But, uh, so that one was just verifiably false. He literally falsified the data for that. Yeah. Then the second claim that they caused autism that cropped up several years after that false study was that it was due to potential uh, mercury poisoning present in some vaccines. Yeah, I heard now, about this the as problem well. is The problem with that is, is that the form of uh, mercury that can cause that sort of heavy metal poisoning and neurological damage in the human body is not the same form of mercury preservative that's used in vaccines. Mm-hmm. 
Now, the American FDA, at least, does not actually know the dosage in which the vaccine or the mercury present in vaccine, that chemical structure of it, can be dangerous to the human body. That but is- their research assumes that it is significantly higher and therefore safer for the human consumption, especially in vaccine right. form. Right. Plus, uh, of course, it doesn't really make sense from a game theory standpoint either, because, you know, big pharma, which is essentially the government, uh, why would they want to create more libertarians? It's, yeah. (laughs) Precisely. Yes. (laughs) Even if it weren't for the fact that, that we don't fully understand the dosages in which that form of mercury would need to be present, the fact that we haven't seen above uh, the fact that we didn't see increasing autism rates before and after the ban of that form of mercury means that it probably had no correlation anyways. You know, autism rates are actually still increasing globally, despite the fact that that form of mercury was banned in vaccines just as a precautionary measure. So, Right. right. Um, do you have any idea... What is causing this global rise in autism? Man, I am in no way to I'm in no way qualified to comment on that. If I had to hazard a completely random um off the board guess, I would imagine that it's just got something to do with increasing dietary changes in the human race over time. Mm-hmm. You know, we are able to eat more nutritionally than we ever have at any point in human history before. So I guess it's it's got something to do with the hum, evolving human diet. Yeah. Yeah, it's a bit right. off topic, but oh yeah, go ahead, uh, Mr. Woods. <laughs> yeah, yeah uh, I've heard a theory at least that uh, basically autism is sort of the next step in human evolution. Of course, Evolution is both fake and gay, but uh, it's still an interesting theory, I think. Yeah, I, I have heard that claim made too. I don't think that I've personally seen any research to it, but I would actually be keenly interested in seeing people actively making those claims, whether it be through research in a book or video interviews, whatever. But I, I have also heard that claim, yes. That's very interesting. Um, I have a. I just thought of this, but um, uh, one thing that kind of popped into my mind is that autism might be um, kind of a, a welfare or luxury. Um, well, disease is not the word, but uh, in, a, in a sense, it's similar to cancer. Um, so, cancer is kind of. Well, not necessarily a product of the modern age, but it's much more common now um, because, because people just die way just less of other killing. shit. Yes. Right. Yes. Um, so maybe um, we are noticing autism more because we we have the means to, essentially. Because it's it's uh, we are coming in such a state of development that being autistic is becoming very relevant. Yeah, I think there's something to that because you also need to take into consideration the idea that in recent decades, there has also been a steady expansion of the neurological profile that's understood to be on the autism spectrum. So, you know, if there's just more conditions and more cases in which you can identify it, there will naturally be an increase as well. Exactly. But I, I think you're right in that it's, it's one of the plagues of wealth, like cancer, like you said. If mm-hmm. people aren't dying violent deaths and they're not dying of starvation and they're not dying of all these other things, you will naturally then start to see a rise in other conditions which will affect the human body in ways that are far less immediate and far less brutal than exactly. in previous yes. portions of history. Yes, I, uh, I think that would be at least a reasonable thought to entertain. Um, speaking of reasonable thoughts to entertain... Um, the next step in the vaccine discussion, which things um, do we not know, but do we think are very likely to be true? 
I would say that in this particular category, there's an argument to be made that it is reasonable that the pharmaceutical industry with its regulatory capture and influence over the state almost certainly does not do a sufficient job of making the general public aware of the potential risks before they force vaccination. And this comes to your initial argument of bodily autonomy as well, Mm -hmm. because there have been very well-proven studies that even if the risks are small, there are in fact the potential for disastrous side effects if your own body's condition meets the right requirements for the vaccine to go horribly wrong. You know, they are probably a net good in society, but they are not at all without risk. And that potential risk is significantly downplayed, far more than it should be in a free society. Yeah. Yeah, this makes uh, a lot of sense. Um, Because uh, to the extent that they are... Well, um, I'm not quite sure if they are mandatory in the Netherlands or if they are mandatory in the U.S. Uh, But, uh, I mean, there is a strong movement, um, both within government and within society, to mandate um, vaccinations. Um, So the idea that there's government fuckery going on here and that the pharmaceutical industry is uh, not properly informing us of the risk is... Not very far-fetched, I would say. Yeah, and to your point, just to clarify, here in the U.S., there is a list of quote-unquote mandatory vaccinations. Right. You can make a case that you're a conscientious objector and therefore not receive them, or rather your parents can, because the mandatory ones all happen when you're extremely young, you know, mm-hmm. before you have informed consent yourself for it. Yes. So there is a quote-unquote mandatory list but there's also ways out of it for the parents who choose not to accept the risk all right right so it's like the draft um, i guess yeah it's it's very similar and you know you could even think of it as a literal draft in some senses because those mandatory vaccines are generally acknowledged as to be for viruses that are dead or near dead, at least in first world nations, mm-hmm. you know, they're, it's literally using your body as a willing or unwilling soldier in the uh, bulwark contributing to herd, herd immunity for some of these diseases, like smallpox, like measles, like polio. Yes, exactly. Um, do you actually have any um, idea what the potential risks roughly are? So, I would like to, again, focus on the polio vaccine for just a moment. Because this is a perfect illustration of both accidental risks and intentional design risks. Hmm. Uh, There was an incident in the mid-50s in the U.S. in which the polio vaccine, the SOC uh, vaccine that's you know so world famous was improperly manufactured and was as a result contained live samples of the polio virus oh, as opposed to the dead samples which are supposed to grant you the immunity yeah now really God, <laughs> yes yeah and wow. several thousand several thousand of these improperly manufactured vaccines were sent out five people died something like 200, 250 people contracted the virus as a result. And, you know, just thank God it wasn't even worse. But that's a prime example of if anything goes wrong in the manufacturing process, anything at all, you could end up actually getting the disease from the vaccines as opposed to building an immunity to them. Now, I think, that, um, oh, yeah, no, keep going. I'm sorry. <laughs> Well, we can draw a line there if you've got something to say about that before I move into the other portion of the discussion. on the uh, Sure, yeah, because this um, uh, makes me think that um, I think a comparison can be drawn here between, well, more things the government does, um, is that um, so a vaccine, for example, uh, take the polio vaccine, is if properly manufactured, 
not inherently dangerous. However, um, due to government interference, um, the chance of it being improperly manufactured goes up massively, uh, thus making it dangerous. Yeah, and for anyone who wants a uh, source citation on that information, the search term you'll want to look up is the cutter incident or polio vaccine cutter incident. And those search terms should give you the information that would uh, verify my claim there. Is that uh, cutter with double T or cutter with double D? Cutter with two T's, yes. All right. Very good. Um, thank you for the information. Now, you had a next part of uh, a point. Yeah, the other side of the coin with the polio vaccine is you will have occasionally or potentially heard the claim that especially older versions of the polio vaccine could potentially give a person cancer. Ah, okay. This claim, this claim evolved because the cells in which the vaccine were initially cultured came from a breed of monkey that carries a latent virus or is likely to carry a latent virus mm -hmm. that can cause cancer in rodents. Aha. Uh -huh. Now, to continue here, when people first found out about that, there was an absolute uproar because they naturally thought if it can give a cancer to rodents, well, it might be able to give it to humans too. There's a reason we do so much testing on rodents because of genetic similarities. Yeah, that makes sense. So... What happened was multiple, multiple, multiple studies have been done to try and debunk this claim that it can give you cancer. And they have found conclusively that as a group or as a class, it will not increase cancer rates, but they are unable to prove that it cannot give you a higher cancer likelihood as an individual. Right. So this is, this is a tacit acknowledgement that they can't say it won't increase your cancer risk. Yeah, that's um, shady. It is, you know, and a lot of that goes to methodologic, method, methodological problems <laughs> with those studies. I swear, I know how to speak English. It's my first language. <laughs> um, so those Is those it the only as well? You know, I can do very small smatterings of elementary level German and Spanish, and I can also read and translate common common folk peasant level Latin, but uh, I wouldn't call myself anywhere near fluent in any of them. <laughs> <clears throat> oh well, don't worry. Uh, Dark Tom Woods only speak, speaks retard, so you know we're fine. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. At least you can understand it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, consider the circles we're in. <laughs> so, shoot, okay, where were we at? They um, they cannot actively disprove yeah, that it won't increase your cancer risk. Yes. Yeah. Which, you know, I think that then creates another problem with informed consent. I and, would say you so, know, yeah. that That same problem then does also carry on with other vaccines and that goes back to the manufacturing problem that we spoke of in the first place mm -hmm. there are so many variables that go into the development and testing of these that it's it's almost impossible to fully understand the effects they'll have so you're hedging on the 90 percent chance that it will do exactly what it's supposed to and the less than five percent chance that you'll have a disastrous reaction now those mm -hmm. odds are very good to gamble yes you know that creates a net good but it's it's not perfect. Yeah, I was about to say, um, I think uh, people that, I, I know if you step into your car or especially if you start uh, riding a motorcycle, um, your chances of something uh, very undesirable happening to you are massively bigger. Um, but, well, as you said, informed consent uh, is still quite relevant. Yes, yep. Yeah. So uh, that, that's all I had to say in that question category. I think, like I said, the polio vaccine is the perfect one to illustrate that with because of the concerns about it. Right. 
Yeah, that makes. Uh, I think that's a very good point. Um, so that brings us to the next point. What do we think is the um, the, the uh, least likely or the most outlandish thing um, that we still can, with some rationality, with some reason, suspect to be real? So I think that this is a great transition point we can use to talk about everyone's uh, super villain of the moment, Mr. <laughs> Gil Bates. Yes. <laughs> because he has done quite a bit of funding for vaccine research and development. Yes. Now, he's not necessarily personally picking the projects or personally telling them you need to research this specific aspect of this thing, but he is on record as having said in public lectures that he wants to decrease the world population. Now, that in tandem with the fact that he sinks so much money into an allegedly life-preserving area of research should make a person at least uh, do a little thinking. Yes, absolutely. Um, no, it's, it, it's inherently suspicious, even if there's not necessarily a smoking gun reason to suspect foul play. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Um, I'd like to, uh, not that I'm a particularly big fan of Mr. Uh, uh, Gil Bates, um, but one plausible counter-argument I've heard um, is that he's not so much talking about specifically reducing the world population as much as um, essentially... Um, reducing the birth rate. Well, reducing the the growth of uh, yeah. the population. Um, yeah. One second. In All right. Tom was right. What so, were you about uh, yeah. Uh, so, in other words, it's uh, less likely that he's trying to kill people with his vaccines, and more likely that he's trying to make them, you know, sterile. Soy boys. Well, that's yeah. Uh, yeah, that's one possibility, I suppose. You know, at, at that point, it's it's not quite a discussion of semantics because it is more complicated than that. But it becomes a discussion of active or passive means, and it's right. at that point you need to decide if someone's a true believer in a cause or not. Because it's yes. one thing to pursue a goal actively. And it's another one to sort of weave the seeds for it to happen in society over time, just passively. You know, it's the argument of engineering versus controlled demolition. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Um, so, um, oh man, what do we reasonably suspect uh, Bill Gates wants or is doing? Like, do we have anything that we can lend any credence to? Well, he wants to ID everyone. Yeah. Probably using the vaccines. So, yeah, that's one thing. Yeah, uh, so, and that's a really good point. You know, Microsoft does now have a patent on the ability to mine cryptocurrency using wearable technology. Now, it would be one thing if that just means your smartphone or an Apple Watch or something yeah. of that extent. But now, when you add that in conjunction to the fact that he has actively and publicly discussed the idea of digital vaccination certificates, that's when people start getting froggy, to turn a phrase, and get very nervous about this sort of thing. And I think rightfully so. Yes. Because at that point, then you've... At the point that you've got the technology to do that, you've got the point technology to track someone wherever they go. You've got their ability to monitor their intake of dozens of other things. And it's mm -hmm. really the enabling of the greatest leap forward in police state technology that we've ever seen. Oh, yeah. Um, you know what? One second. So the concern that is, like we were saying with Bill Gates, is that this would enable a huge increase in police state technology. Because at the point where you could either chip someone 
or with uh, some sort of invisible ink tattoo them with this information on them that then enables them to do the same exact thing with a dozen of other things, whether it's your political affiliation, whether it's known criminal associations, whether it's just you have a felony on your record or something. You know, it's the idea that we could then make so much private information and so much information that can be weaponized against classes or groups of people so readily available to be searched through a database that we need to rightfully be concerned about. You know, there's nothing inherently suspicious about knowing whether or not a person has had certain vaccines. It's about the state's ability to weaponize and use that information against groups of their own population. Well, and I mean, let's be fair. Um, we'll get into the technological part later, but at least um, motive-wise, we know that both Microsoft and the government um, are capable of this and are interested in this. Um, I mean, companies like Microsoft, Google, Facebook, etc., they're known to track everything you do. Uh, Absolutely. And the more they could track and the more data they could extract, obviously, the more they would like to. Exactly. So, I mean, this is not beyond them. This is not some crazy conspiratorial thought that they would do this. Um, you know, uh, something that um, that I think would be an interesting um, thing about uh, the eventual uh, mandatory vaccines and chipping is that, uh, you know, needles are a pretty common phobia. So I wonder if they're going to be, you know, uh, counting that as basically... Um, like uh, you're allowed to opt out of the, out of it if you're mm. terrified of needles, or they're just gonna piss off pretty large parts of the population. I guess that's yeah, an interesting uh, thought. That that is a really interesting concern. Um, I can't predict how a state actor would respond to that. But my guess is that they'd potentially tell you to suck it up and just take it anyways. But if there is some sort of conscientious objector clause, I think it would be pretty wise for everyone to take it after they've read the uh, terms and conditions of any given vaccine that comes out of this specifically. Yeah. I wonder... um, because, I mean, of course, I got, uh, uh, well, I didn't quite get all my vaccinations as a child. I'm thinking back now, I got one, uh, I think, against tuberculosis when I went to the U.S. Um, but I don't remember any <laughs> terms and conditions being applied to getting it. Um, although, probably the terms and conditions were already covered under myself going to this particular university. Um, So I wonder if this one will actually come with specific terms and conditions that we can uh, look into. Yeah, you know, and most of them are supposed to have them anyways. You have the right to consult and question your doctor before they're given to you, at least here in the U.S. I can't speak to the legal code in other places. Yeah. So, you know, that is a thing. And as we discussed at the beginning of the episode, that is kind of the backbone argument of anti-vaxxers being able not to receive vaccines. Yes, exactly. Is because they are able to obtain and then give informed consent that they do not want them. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I would say that it is a very valid backbone. Um, I mean, this, this right to be informed and to have bodily autonomy goes up basically no matter the circumstance. Um, But what I would like to know is how you estimate the technological capability of, say, a Microsoft um, to develop a vaccine that has the technology to do all this. So we know that the technology already exists to microchip people 
and be able to link that microchip to accounts because there are companies here in my home state of Wisconsin in the U.S. that actually offered a optional microchip to their employees so that they could use that chip instead of their ID badge or a lunch card in the company cafeteria. Oh, Jesus. So we, we know that the technology has been tested and that it literally works. A person could hypothetically take a small enough RFID chip in their arm or in their hand or, you know, on their shoulder or something, and then use it if uh, systems are configured properly in any given place to communicate with it and pull data off it and send data to it. So I think that that's also something we need to be wary of, especially with the advent of 5G networks and technology. Now, I'd like to be very clear real quick here with your audience. Uh-huh. I am not saying, I am not saying that 5G gives you the coronavirus. <laughs> I am not saying that 5G necessarily gives you cancer, though there's still research to be done about that. But what I am saying is that with the size of data packets that can be transmitted over a 5G band and the speed at which they can be transmitted, that then reaches the connectivity threshold for that sort of thing to become commonplace. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I I think it does. It does for me. (laughs) Um, So... Uh, yeah, that's, um, that's, to be honest, worse news than I was hoping for. Um, I still yeah, held there, up some There's, uh, <laughs> there's uh, no good news to be found in the year 2020. It's just <laughs> no, no, I suppose not. Um, talking about no good news, just to deviate from the topic a little bit more. Uh, this was today. Uh, just for our audience, uh, today is the 22nd of April. Um, several hours ago, uh, everyone's dearest leader, uh, God Emperor Donald Trump, sent out a tweet uh, with something to the effect that all Iranian naval vessels that would be harassing uh, U.S. ships would be shot down. Um, so, you know, uh, I'd, it, with impending economic crisis and the coronavirus I feel like the memes about the sweet meteor of death um, and just nuke everyone 2020 are being becoming less and less ironic every day. Yeah, you know, and not to get us off topic of what you brought me on here to talk about too much, I would point out that that tweet about Iran and that announcement of policy change mm-hmm. with ye old Persia is especially interesting. Because if you were tracking U.S. news in January, back when only conspiracy theorists like myself were yelling about coronavirus, that's what the establishment media at the time was super upset about. They were trying to bang the war drums to go fight in the Middle East yet again on a new front. So the fact that that's rearing its head again here, I think, is mighty suspicious. They haven't taken their eye off that prize yet. Yeah, that's a good one. Maybe, maybe they're going to do the old switcheroo again. Maybe it's going to be in like two weeks. No one has heard of the granola virus and uh, everyone is going to talk about the Ryan. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's extremely plausible that they could be setting up for a bait and switch with the dominant news headlines. Yeah. That would be very interesting. Um, Yeah. uh, Let's get uh, back into the topic first and then uh, after that we can just kind of freely bullshit um, so uh, let's see we've had uh, essentially what do we know is true what is very likely to be true and what is the most outlandish thing that we are still, into, still willing to entertain is true um, so roughly uh, vaccines aren't without risk there has been government fuckery about this already resulting in deaths. Um, and there is a very real chance that uh, um, Mr. Gates is trying to actually track us via microchip injection. Um, now, what is the most 
suspicious thing uh, that isn't verifiably false, but that is most likely false. So, I would posit for this the uh, there's been a lot of discussion in conspiracy circles, and I am not a biologist, so I mm -hmm. can't make definitive claims on this either. But the idea that what is being identified as the coronavirus is actually something called an exosome, which defends your cell structure from infection as opposed to causing infection. Uh huh. And I think that, again, I'm so far out of my depth on that subject that I can't fairly discuss it. But it's an interesting conversation that's going on. And I've found myself, you know, since January, when the first news broke in Western nations of what was going on, is that the virus is very real, that it is a real thing that is really happening. Mm -hmm. But there is a disturbing number of people, in my opinion, that seem to think that the virus is literally not even real. Yeah, that is. Um, uh, that reminds me of a lot of the. Uh, how many people do you know that have had the virus? Tweets. Um, people, I don't know. Well, apparently, just stuck in their own. Ah, fuck! I wouldn't even call it bubble, but their own little reality. That if you don't know anyone who's been infected, it's clearly not real. Yeah, you can have discussions all you want about lethality. And perhaps the lethality of this will ultimately be overblown and mm -hmm. uh, far lower than we expected. But to think that it's literally not happening at all is, in my opinion, outlandish and absurd. Yes. Yeah. Um, I think, <laughs> I mean, if uh, it would be, how do I say this? Man, fuck. Uh, basically, I would expect China to behave differently if it really weren't a thing. Um, if it really weren't a thing, they wouldn't be trying to deny it uh, or they wouldn't have kept it covered up for so long at first. Absolutely. Uh, they wouldn't be going through a second phase of lockdowns right now. If exactly. Well, are you sure they're covering it up? Maybe. Maybe China has the cure. Ooh. It would be an interesting twist and something that we cannot put past the year we're living in, the idea that it was fabricated and the lockdowns instituted as a way to purge dissidents. Uh, you know, yeah. we do not have real death toll numbers out of China, and we likely never will. But the idea that they could take a relatively innocuous infectious disease outbreak and then use that as an excuse to kill 10 times the number that the disease would because they mm -hmm. were looking to purge uh, political groups that they didn't want to exist any longer. I think that is extremely possible. I yeah. think so too, yeah. And, you know, uh, in, the, in the start of this outbreak, everyone was talking about how it just makes total sense for... For, you know, if you got a biological weapon in your bioweapons facility, not in Canada, but in China, uh, that you have the cure as well. Uh, so, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, that's yeah you know, and that, that's a very real point and something to be considered. You know, I, I do think you raise a very good point. It uh, relies on a narrative that involves trusting China more than I'm willing to, according to just my priors. But again, if we accept the notion that in the year of our Lord 2020, <laughs> we are on a form of accelerationism that is not left-wing or right-wing, but is rather predicated on accelerating the most absurd and outlandish possible headlines, <laughs> yeah. then that becomes an extremely real concern. I would like to... Uh... I think, Tom, the, the problem with your theory uh, is that we're still dealing with China. So, uh, well, first, it's not exactly China's style to uh, develop a bioweapon, but then also develop the vaccine to this bioweapon. Um, I don't think, I don't get the impression that the 
Chinese government is forward thinking like that. And secondly, uh, again, it's China. So even if they have developed uh, a cure or a vaccine, it will be extremely cheap, extremely shitty and entirely unreliable. I mean, I get your second point, but you know, <laughs> not forward, uh, forward thinking. I think you forgot uh, who did the Great Leap Forward. Uh, extremely <laughs> forward thinking. Yes, <laughs> yeah, you raise a good point. <laughs> um, that, uh, I think this is a good point to get into some more uh, loose conspiracy theories about China or, well, about China or about like China related and coronavirus related. Uh, but give me one second here. I have to plug in my laptop. All right. Okay. Uh, so basically, uh, Asians are elves. Well, uh, <laughs> okay. Um, can you can you expand on that one a little bit for me? I'm uh, uh, intrigued. Like, here. Uh, I'm pretty sure it was uh, in Norse mythology that first did, you know, something called an elf, and uh, I think they might have just been describing Asians, you know, shorter than uh, people, and. Uh, uh, they uh, are basically immortal, you know, they don't really age and uh, they're good at making things. And yeah. Uh, hmm. this, um, I would perhaps broaden it categorically myself mm-hmm. to speak to the general trend. As I'm sure you're both aware by now, I am a firm believer that there was at one point in history, a race on this earth of literal giants. Ah, uh, yeah, I think I, I heard would say that, that when combined with the fact that we also have uh, skeletons and fossils of races of uh, diminutive midgets, which are somewhat related to humans, though not entirely human in the sense that we know them today, I think it's very plausible that folkloric tales like that are in fact predicated on something real. Right. So you think there might have been else just they aren't the well, the Asians as we know today. So or they might yeah, actually be closer related, like just like uh, you know, uh, Norwegians are and Dutch people actually are closer related to giants probably than most. Yeah. Yeah, that that's exactly what I'm positing. And, you know, these topics are um, politically charged for some people, and a lot of people are uncomfortable talking about them. But I think it should be said that the human genetic makeup is remarkably diverse. Mm-hmm. And whether we see lingering traits that came from other Races, sub-races of humans that eventually died out over time, or subspecies, I should say. Not race, but species. Right. I think that's something that should absolutely be actively considered. You know, we know a large portion of people today still have residual Neanderthal DNA, for example. Mm-hmm. There's yeah. no reason to believe that other uh, sections of chunk, uh, junk DNA couldn't possibly be from other sources, too. Yeah. Yeah. I um, I would also like to point out that the theory of yours, Tom, fits very well with what we discussed previously, um, being that Russia is actually the size of Belgium, um, and which makes sense considering how Asian the Finnish are, um, which also makes sense considering that the Norwegians invented elves. So essentially the Norwegians invented Asians, um, but they were kind of banished from Norway because that was obviously a country of giants. Um, yeah. So they moved also to China. Also, no Asians allowed yes. racial purity, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, uh, something pretty interesting is that at one point, uh, I believe it was the first, though it may have been the second clause in the constitution of Norway, uh, it said that no Jews and Jesuits were allowed into the country. Really? That's... Um, yeah. I mean, I 
get to know Jew stuff. Like I, I don't get it, but uh, I mean, anti-Semitism is fairly common, uh, but no Jesuits. Why no Jesuits? And well, I think something... can't answer that. <laughs> <laughs> that. That is something that's happened with a number of nations as well throughout history is that the Jesuit order has been banned from setting up operations or practicing their particular missionary techniques. And you did see that, especially in medieval and uh, late, well, mid, I should say Renaissance, because the Jesuits went around until the 1500s. You saw that commonly through re, um, Renaissance Europe all the way up to and through the age of absolutism, where the Jesuits were under constant suspicion and being actively told, you can't do your stuff here because they were assumed to be an order of assassins and political hitmen for the Pope Holy as shit. opposed to actual priests. And, you know, there's a lot of potential circumstantial evidence to actually support that argument too. Holy because shit. if you dig down enough, Jesuit priests are often behind quite a bit of political fuckery in high Renaissance and late Renaissance Europe. But. Holy shit. Um, that's uh, fucking hell. That blows my mind. I mean, I was basically completely uninformed about the uh, the Jesuits before that. Before this, like, I was vaguely aware of their existence, but that's about it. Um, what distinguishes the Jesuit order so much from other um, uh, other monastic orders? So. One of the big differentials is the fact that the Jesuits are explicitly anti-Reformation. Uh-huh. They were formed and founded to fight the Reformation and Reformed theologies. So they are theologically, though not necessarily literally, militant, as okay. opposed to other ones that uh, developed as a result of trying to emulate a patron saint of the order or to do charitable works, or X, Y, and Z, other things. The Jesuits were formed specifically to fight Catholic heresies, which is what various Reformed theological schools of thought were considered at the time. Right. And, you know, still are, depending on how trad a Catholic you are. Yeah, and of course, uh, Norway being a Protestant, a Lutheran country, it makes sense to banish the assassins yeah. that try to fight your faith. Yeah, the sense. Vatican assassins, as it were, yes. And that's actually a very good point, too, because like we were saying, there was a very real concern at the time when they were founded, because the rulers of Europe knew the Jesuits had been instituted to fight against these Reformation heresies. So they would naturally see these particular priests as having an interest in creating political instability. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. Um, well, that was a, a fascinating excursion into the land of um, elves and uh, Jesuits. Um, but to get back to the original topic, sort of, um, Pause. Do you think it's uh, uh, how do you say? It? Do you think it is more likely that this virus developed um, in a lab than that it developed in a wet market? So, I will say this, and I think I've, uh, I was pretty clear about this when I talked with you and Trent too. But it's it's worth reiterating constantly. Yeah. I think that this virus, there's a very very low chance that at least in its current form, it developed in nature. I am agnostic on the point as to whether it was an intentional or accidental release. And I don't think the truth of that particular question is particularly relevant. But I do think that by one means or another, it did get out of a lab. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I would also say that if we want to get even more nuanced that we know that Chinese labs of all kinds have in the past sold um, dead experimental samples, you know, the animals they experiment on to local markets and whatnot. Uh So it is still plausible in my mind that it could be considered a lab release 
even if it was first detected in a wet market. That makes you know, sense. If some, if some dumbass, you know, say a literal intern, did not mm-hmm. properly disinfect a dead bat and then hooked it on the cart to go to market, then, yeah, it was a lab release. They didn't clean up their samples before they tried to resell them. So, you know, I, I don't have a particular concern as to whether it was intentional or accidental, but I do think it originated in one of those labs in Wuhan, yes. Yeah, that sounds very plausible. Um, I remember uh, reading somewhere uh, about someone saying that the general, let's say, health and safety practices in Chinese labs are extremely shoddy. Um, yeah, you know, and they're not exactly first rate even in the U.S. No. So, you know, th- this stuff does literally happen. And it's not a conspiracy to say that sometimes your janitors or your researchers or your literally whoever on staff gets lazy and cuts a corner. And that can cause problems. Yeah. You know, that's human nature. That's not a conspiracy. No, absolutely. Um, let me see. Um, to would you, oh, yeah, go ahead. That the Black Plague was brought by rats is extremely anti Semitic. Send to it. yeah you know i think there's a lot we still don't know about how the actual spread of that came about and happened and i'm not historically versed in it enough to know but well you know what even claims that uh the spanish flu back in the day might have been an intentional release so i have heard about that yeah um i'm just saying uh medical history is a pretty sketchy thing just in general It is indeed. Um, let's see. Uh, I don't really have much else. Um, let's see. Yeah, I think I've covered everything uh, I wanted to know. Um, do you have anything else you'd like to um, shed some light on either COVID-related or vaccine-related or Asian-related? I can't say that I particularly do, but I've put the call out a couple of times. So I'll just uh, say the same to your audience. Mm -hmm. If you or anyone follows the news in places like Iran or in other parts of Asia or even just in Europe, you know, the U.S. is kind of a black hole on COVID-related news in other parts of the world now that it's finally here. So I'd be very interested in just receiving news or information about how it's spreading in the Middle East or in places like France where the U.S. just isn't getting data anymore about it. So any insight you guys have on that or, you know, any mm-hmm. listeners, please feel free to send that to me. I um, I don't have exact numbers, of course, on the spreading right now. Um, but I can tell you that uh, the curve here in the Netherlands appears to be going down um, and the government is very, very carefully starting to take measures to reopen the economy. Um, So it was in yesterday's news that um, I believe children under 12 are allowed to go to school again. Um, Organized sports are allowed for um, children under 18 again. so um to give you an impression of roughly um the way our government is calculating is the main thing they are looking at is intensive care beds so how many intensive care beds uh, have been realized um how many are in use um and is the number of those going up or down of or of the ones in use um so if I am not mistaken, there's something like a thousand or 1200 intensive care beds usually available in the Netherlands or well available is not quite word, but like in total um, and up to 2400 has been realized um, in relation to the Corona crisis. Um, so we haven't needed all 2400 luckily, uh, 
we haven't had Italy type situations. Um, but now the amount of beds of the intensive care that are in use is going down. Um, and our government is essentially saying that uh, they, um, for taking further measures, they are their main consideration is the amount of intensive care beds in use. So that would have to be below the regular amount of intensive care beds being available um, to take wider ranging reopening measures. Um, and then they're working on uh, apps as well to track the um, corona infections essentially. Um, but these apps are, well, it seems like they are going to be very, very unreliable. Um, there's been seven selected fairly recently, and one of them already had a major privacy leak. Um, so that's roughly the situation in the Netherlands. Um, yeah, Mr. Uh, Dark Tom. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, well, it seems that um, the... Um, rate of infections are going down here as well. Uh, right. Like two weeks ago, I think the reproduction rate was uh, 0.7, so it's no longer mm -hmm. exponential. Um, and, uh, well, uh, all the um, ads on the uh, old uh, Big Brother uh, telly thing uh, the TV uh, are uh, Corona team, so that's interesting. And uh, they are well. The government is currently pushing a new app that is uh, that basically tracks you everywhere you go, so that uh, they can give you a message if you have been close to someone who has been infected. Right. Which. Oh. It's pretty, yeah. It's pretty um, scary. <laughs> Just scary. Yeah, yeah. The, um, so it oh, sounds yeah. like then the general trend in Europe is that you might be through the worst of the disease itself, mm -hmm. at least for the spring. And now we're coming to the point where it's time to grapple with consequences, like expansion of the police state, long-term damage from mild cases of uh, COVID infection and everything else that we haven't had time to deal with as we try yes. to treat the panic itself. Yeah. And um, I think that would be a very good topic for either another episode or listen to, I don't know, I, you covered something like this on the Gaslight Hour, I assume? We did talk about it at one point in March. And right. then in our next episode which is in editing and should be dropped by the time people have heard this, Joe and I specifically do discuss it a little bit more. Yeah. All right. That's great. Um, because uh, as much as I'm interested to hear about it, I'm not particularly interested uh, in doing an episode about it myself, um, but I am very glad that you will. Uh, so uh, with that, I would like to close off. Um, for a further discussion on consequences, secondary tertiary effects, um, listen to the Gaslight Hour um, and listen to my good friend uh, Mr. De La Paz um, and uh, Joe Paz uh, where do people find you? They can find me on Twitter at Dogman Respector that is the most consistent place to find me on social media mm -hmm. I do also lurk through a handful of uh, Discord servers though I'm not particularly active in any of them so find me on Twitter Find me on Discord. You can find me on Keybase, also at Dogman Respector. And uh, you can also find me on library.tv, L-B-R-Y. It's a fancy crypto project, and I uh, archive all of my podcast appearances on a channel there, at Dogman Respector 2. All right. That is great. Um, and then uh, Tom Woods, Dark Tom Woods, where do people find you? Yeah. Uh, you you can mainly find me on Twitter at Darkton Woods, as you might have ex expected. <laughs> uh, I also have a Patreon, patreon.com slash Darkton Woods, I think. 
sure if the Patreon links work like that, but give it a try anyway. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, uh, you can also follow my uh, secondary account on Twitter at uh, Caroline Carpet. And uh, yeah, <laughs> that's all. I think. All right, beautiful. Um, I do have uh, opened a Patreon. Um, and if you become a subscriber, you will get access to exclusive foot pics, although they may or may not be mine. Um, <laughs> um, so, uh, you know what? Just all of you sent me your Patreon and PayPal, and I will put it in the show notes. Um, and with that, thank you both very much for coming on, uh, and I will speak to you later. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Uh, just real quick, thank you, audience of uh, No Real Libertarian, for allowing me back onto your platform. And uh, it was a pleasure to finally engage with Mr. Professor Burke.